First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Ursula Hakey, author of The Patron Saint of Pregnant Girls. I need to become each character in order to write about a character. Maybe maybe that's the way in. We'll be back with Ursula Hagee in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Ursula Hagee, author of 12 books of fiction, including Stones from the River, Floating in My Mother's Palm, The Vision of Emma Blau, and a nonfiction book called Tearing the Silence on Being German in America. Hege was born in Germany and moved to the United States when she was 18 years old. She teaches writing at Stony Brook's Southampton campus and is the recipient of more than 30 grants and awards. Her latest novel, The Patron Saint of Lost Girls, takes place in the 1870s on an island in Germany on the North Sea. 
The story opens when a rogue wave sweeps away three of the four children of a young couple, Lata and Kala. To deal with their grief in individual ways, Kala joins a traveling circus and Lata at first tries to sacrifice her one child to gain back the other three and slowly learns to accept what she has left and becomes a midwife to those in need. In the town where the story is set, Nordstrand, there is also a home run by nuns for young unmarried pregnant girls. The nuns' goal is to offer the soon-to-be mothers a well-rounded education. The book moves back and forth between the girls at the school and Lata and other mothers in the town who have suffered losses. A strong voice in the novel is that of a chorus of elderly women who offer historical tales about the town and thoughts on how beauty and sadness can live side by side. We began the interview with Ursula Hagee sharing her early relationship to storytelling. I feel the stories were always there. I learned how to read when I was about five, but before that, there was a lot of storytelling. Um, my mother telling me stories, uh, nighttime stories, and um, I've read uh, since then in some papers that my my mother's papers that um, she and my father would stand outside at the bedroom door bedroom I shared with my younger sister and um, listened to me tell her stories. So um, I don't remember that, but I, I love her memory of that. So I learned how to, how to read when I was five, and I figured out very, very quickly that the only thing more exciting than reading uh, would be to write. And so I knew from, from age six that I wanted to be a writer. And I wrote poems. I wrote terrible teenage poetry sitting on a on some rocks by the Rhine River. And I wrote part of a novel, a mystery novel, uh, when I was sort of probably 15, 16, wrote it on, uh, on lined paper in a notebook. So the urge, if you want to call it that, or the, um, the need, the wish to, it, it's how I'm wired, I think, that I make stories, that stories come to me out of something that I perhaps observe, and the catalyst may not be there anymore when the story is finished, but something something sets it off. And I believe I'm wired that way. I don't think I could turn it off, and I'm very grateful for it. I believe you came to America in 1965 when you were around 18. And I'm wondering about language and changing to English and if that changed anything for you in terms of how you articulated the world to yourself or on paper. I was very, very shy at that age. And uh, I still am, basically, but I... I can talk my way out of it. Um, but I had I had studied English with the nuns in Germany for uh, nine years. So my written English was good. My spoken English was really, oh, how shall I say it? I would um, I would say something, okay, and uh, to someone, and the person would say what, and I would repeat it, and the person would say what, and. After that, I didn't want to say it anymore because it's this thing of, of making mistakes, uh, of not being understood. 
And of course, that changed with the years. When I first arrived in America, I I was thinking in German. So everything that I said or wrote in English was a translation, and it was the translation of an of an early immigrant. Um, but there is that delay. I'm sure you you know that too. That uh, right now we're speaking English, and there is no translation. At that time, there was always the delay of the translation, taking in the question in English, translating it to myself to German, thinking of the answer in German, and then speaking it. So I felt there always was a delay, and I've. Um, worked with that with one of my characters in um, the vision of Emma Blau where I where I wrote she um, she had always been really bright uh, but coming to America um, she didn't have any of that she felt slow she felt um, it, it was a whole different thing in terms of her self-esteem and I took a lot of what I had experienced and in a very different way 90 years earlier, gave it to an immigrant from Germany. Um, language then uh, became, it, it kept shifting, it kept shifting. It, I think, or I know, that gradually I started to think in English. Not, not right away. I started to have some dreams in English. It got to the point, I mean, I've been here, you know, how long? 60 years, thereabouts. 55 years, and uh, you still hear the accent, but my English is much more adult than my German. My German is the German of an 18-year-old who hasn't been home in a long time. My vocabulary, I should say. My vocabulary in English is the vocabulary of a 74-year-old. And so there are, I think of it as crayons. I have many more crayons in English than in German. I have many, many shades of blue, where in German, perhaps, I have just a few. This has changed back somehow when I started writing about characters in Germany. I did a lot of my research in German, and that has increased so that now I, I sometimes don't even know if I'm listening, let's say in a film, if I'm listening to English or German, because it get, gets into me the images the same way. And I liked it, it's sort of weird, but I like it. Um, when I was traveling in Germany to do research, um, I was in Northern Germany near the Danish border and um, people in Germany would ask me if I was from Denmark. In the patron saint of pregnant girls, there's, there's a mythic quality to it in a way. It takes place in the late 1800s in a town on the North Sea in northern Germany, near near the Danish border. And you have at the center these three mothers, Tilly, Lata, and Sabine. And a freak wave comes and takes three of the four children of Lata away. And basically that's kind of the inciting event that you learn about this town where a circus comes and and these these mythic qualities and these old women that have legends and the deep legends in this area about floods and waves and water. Yeah, what what you say about mystical is definitely there in most of my work. Um, I think of it as magical realism. It's sort of the uh, the fairy tale 
possibility. And I love it how someone once asked Gabriel Garcia Marquez to define magical realism. And uh, he said, oh, but it's all real. So that's where I am. Uh, it is all real, even though some of it is in the imagination of my characters. They're also legends in a, in a little town like that that has endured centuries of floods and also beauty in the landscape. They know each other. They know each other's stories. The characters were in my previous book. And everything that happens in The Patron Saint of Pregnant Girls is 25 years or thereabouts prior to the earlier book. Um, I do between 50 and 100 revisions, and each time going deeper, deeper into character and storyline. So I may know very, very little about a character, but then um, understand, understand more and more. I need to become each character in order to write about a character. Maybe, maybe that's the way in. I have to be Lotte, the midwife, who becomes a midwife when a hundred-year wave tragically sweeps three of her children from her, and she's left with the one in her arms. And to make a bargain with God, she offers him the living child in return for the other three. And that promise hangs over her throughout the book. Um, it, um, it horrifies people in the town. It horrifies her husband. And yet, for me to write about her, I need to understand why she does that, why she would do that. I need to understand, not just understand, but I need to feel I need to feel her feelings, her thoughts, and this, I need to feel and believe in this weird, terrible logic that, okay, I'll give you the one in my arms, the one who's alive, if you bring back the other three. And of course, reaching the other three becomes very much part of the book. You mentioned that you revise 50 to 100 times. Is that like you're going through the entire manuscript or revising, or do you go by character? What's that process like for you? On any given day, I'll read what I read the day before or perhaps the week before and start revising. And it doesn't mean that I change everything. It means that the passages where I feel I'm there, I leave and I work with the ones where that need revision. There are passages in The Patron Saint of Pregnant Girls that I never touched again, even though I went through them very, very closely. But each time, they were there. They were there. And other areas I will keep revising. It's sort of like there is a stitch. I think it's called a hem stitch, where you go back and then you move forward a little bit. You go back again and move forward a little bit. And for me... It's sort of like that, that when I go through recent work, and let's say a week's worth of work, it moves me forward into new material. It's not the whole book that I go through again and again. I will do that way, way toward the ending when the book is there, almost there. <laughs> um, but in the, before that, it is going back and moving forward. Um, I also don't know how my books end. And... Um, I love that, and I need that, because if I already knew 
how the story ends, I would not have to write it. So part of it is um, not knowing, which is which is really essential for my writing. It's like um, with the revision, like sticking my hand into a brook and uh, there's mud at the bottom and I close, try to find what's there, but I can't see it. And I close my hand around something and bring it up to the surface where the water is clear. And um, that may be what I was looking for, or maybe I'll throw it back in because it doesn't move me in any way. Because this book has so many different voices, you have these mothers, and then in their town there's a home for pregnant young girls who are unmarried, run by nuns who are trying to give them an artistic education and to give them opportunity that they wouldn't have. And they come from all over Germany. So you have the nuns and the young girls. You also have almost like a chorus of old women on this island. On on this island, they have a a celebration every year for the oldest person, and and you're tapping into the wisdom of these old women, and you have a circus, so you have circus performers. So as we were talking about you inhabiting the minds, you know, really getting into these characters, do you ever find, because you're inhabiting so many different types of people, that on a certain writing day, you're either really in the mood for a certain type of character and other days you can't get into the heads of others or is that just a luxury you can't have? In in the novel, I will take any character and pull out all the... This is later when, when it's almost finished and I pull them out and put them in a separate file saying, for example, uh, Sister Hildegunde, who is uh, the one who owns this this mansion by the North Sea, uh, this convent. And I will pull out all the Sister Hildegunde passages. I will highlight them in the novel so that I know where they're from. And then I'll put them into sequence in a file that will be called Sister Hildegunde. And I'll keep going through that uh, quite a few times to um, get deeper, of course, but also to look at the sequence. Does this really belong here? Should this come later? Um, is it in conflict with what I have already written about her? Am I repeating myself? So I have this, this, these periods where I will be for a week, a week, um, inside one of the characters. And then once all of that is revised, I will put it back where it was before. One of the things that Sister Hildegunda said early on in the book that I wanted to ask you about in terms of your artistic life. She she started this school. She was also a painter and kind of had an epiphany when she was painting. She wasn't that good. And then all of a sudden she kind of found her stride. And she said, artists, we believe it's a calling to bring forth the talent you're born with, that the talent will destroy you if you do not bring it forth. I do believe that. I do believe that. <laughs> The gift, I think, is different from wanting to do something, okay? I'm learning how to weave, and I'm enjoying it very, very much, but I could also give it up if I um, I often do give it up again, and then I'll, then I'll try it again. But it's not something that inhabits me. It's something 
that I enjoy. I um, I look through books. I think about it. But but the writing, I couldn't stop. And I've tried. <laughs> There's a three-year period where I tried to stop writing. Um, and I couldn't stay away from it. And it is a gift. And I'm very grateful for it. And I'm also respectful of it. Why did you stop for three years or try? I wrote my first book when I was in my early to mid-20s, when my first son was born. And I, uh, every time he he took a nap, I wrote and um, finished a book that that was rejected again and again. And you know, um, maybe you haven't done this, but when I was sending my work out first, you put it into an additional envelope that has your return address and then inside and then outside the um, the envelope to the uh, publishers or agents. And when it comes back, it comes back in this package that that bears your own handwriting. And you know, you know it's a rejection. And, um, and it feels awful. It feels pretty awful. And I decided after about a year of sending sending this out that um, talking about weird logic, okay, I decided I was not particularly into rejection and um, it wasn't good for me to do this. It wasn't healthy and therefore um, I would stop. And I did. And I had another baby and um, the creative urge came through in in other things, I did needlepoint pillows, which um, I would never do now. I could never do now. I um, I baked uh, sourdough bread, which only now I'm starting to do again. I did a lot of nesting, I would say. I read with my kids. I played with them. I took them for walks. I It was very much the nesting of those years. And then I realized I couldn't stay away from it. And I um, enrolled at the University of New Hampshire as an undergraduate. And I I was very, very careful. I took a class in journalism. And um, uh, the professor, Don Murray, who became a mentor too, was so positive about my work. And I also got almost everything published because I lived an hour away, little town named Guilford, and the Laconia newspaper um, published most of what I wrote. So I started to gear it toward um, uh, covering cultural events. They became my homework, and then I got them published. So the following course, I took a course in the novel, writing the novel, a workshop, and uh, had a fantastic teacher, John Yand. Um, I wrote um, another novel while he was my uh, mentor, and um, he was so excited about it, he bundled it off to his own agent, to his own publisher, which of course felt great. And when it came back again and again, um, I was 28 at that time, second book coming back again and again, and I promised myself that it's a really important memory for me, a real turning point, because I promised myself I would keep writing, even if no one ever read my work. 
And that's how I have written since then. It wasn't always easy, but um, that novel was not published. So um, in a um, in a in a graduate workshop, then I started um, a novel I thought of as Intrusions, and um, that became my first published novel. And I was very interested by then in when publishers say okay, first novel by, it quite often isn't. They uh, they don't say, well, this is the third novel, the others didn't make it. Also, when I promised myself to keep writing, no matter what, I put writer on my passport, and that was like putting it down in writing that I would keep writing. It sounds like some of what you're talking about has to do with like the accumulation of, of wisdom and, and aging and maturing, well, you wrote about these these old women and this collective unconscious in the in the town, and the town had this sort of celebration uh, for the oldest person each year, which caused some competition between the people who were older because yeah. they wanted to win, and they. But obviously, there's something there about honoring the, this older wisdom and generation. In when I was a child in Germany, um, the older generation, grandparents, um, neighbors that age, they were honored. They were um, listened to, not in terms of obeying, but listened to what they knew, what they said. Um, Some of them were incredible gossips. Um, And as a writer, I love writing about people who who spread gossip. And... um, so that part is, it, to me, is quite funny and also substantial. I lost my grandmother when I was three years old. And from everything I've heard, she was the closest person to me. I absolutely loved her. And I've imagined going back to her door again and again and calling out for her and she wasn't there. Um, she had a wooden leg. She had diabetes, and it was amputated during the Second World War. And I loved that leg, and I would ride on it, and I would hold on to her skirt and ride on her leg. And my mother would get angry at me, saying, you know, you're hurting her. And my grandmother, Oma, Oma means grandmother, and Oma would say, oh, no, no, let her do it, let her do it. It's a very early feeling of love that that is unshakable so for me the connection to to the old women there I think is very much and I'm just thinking that now because of your question it it may have started with my love for her well one of the things that happens after Lada loses her three children is that her husband leaves he joins the circus and he goes kind of seasonally and he comes back. And the first time he came back, she didn't know that he was coming back. And it's so hard for her to accept him back for many, many reasons. But one of the things that you wrote that was a really interesting line that kind of permeated through the book was the sense of longing was you wrote, his presence intrudes on her longing for him when longing itself becomes familiar. Yeah, yeah. And to her, that's very dangerous. And she has to run from that. I was really fascinated, and I say fascinated because it has nothing to do with me writing it. It has to do with what they revealed to me as characters. Um, I was fascinated 
by the um, the change in the relationship, but all the hurt, all the all the caution. And initially, the book started there. Um, there is a passage near the one that you just uh, read, and it um, he comes to her at night, and he walks along the dike and um, slips into the bedroom. And it wasn't the right point of entry, but I didn't think about that for a long time. Right now, it's probably a third into the novel. I was very aware that... Um, I needed to work on the on the balance between bliss and sorrow, and there was a lot of sorrow in the novel, and um, there was also a lot of bliss. I had to look for it; it was there, and I loved riding along that edge where sorrow and bliss meet. So, I was swimming at a pool while working on the book, and one day I saw a couple come into the pool and. That actually is now the uh, the beginning of the novel. It uh, it became the catalyst for that, and it shows um, Lotta and color in a moment of absolute bliss. It shows them um, in terms of the the sexuality <clears throat> of their joy, and it spans the birth of their four children. And you had asked me to read a passage. And I'll be glad to read that one whenever. It's interesting that you're you're interested in that seam between bliss and and sorrow. What do you think happens yeah. there? I think there is a wonderful intensity to see both, to be aware of both. Um, when uh, when we're terribly sad, we're so aware of it that we uh, sometimes, often, don't understand that there's also another part of us that um, uh, that is blissful. And I don't mean in any kind of happy ending, um, everything is fine kind of way, but it's, it's the awareness. And, and it takes effort for us, for my characters, to, um, to let that awareness of the bliss in. And as a writer, if I have a lot of material that um, that has sadness and loss in it. I need to look for um, for the moments of bliss. And the more I did, the more of them I found. And sometimes it can, can be um, noticing something for the first time. The wind moves the top of the Wakefield blossom, quality of light, the birds that come back in swarms and clouds every year. So I think the the bliss, just thinking about it now, sometimes if we're within the sorrow, it takes more awareness to take in both. And also it's a consolation knowing that that is there or will be there. Just kind of as an aside, I was just wondering, because there was a, a small passage in this a book about a dwarf. I'm wondering, did you grow up around a dwarf? I mean, I'm obviously thinking of Trudy, but... Yeah, when I realized that Trudy actually, age-wise, would fit in there, I was incredibly excited. And she um, she is a foundling, and um, the circus that Color works with um, adopts her. There's no one to adopt her from, but they, they take her as one of their own. 
yeah, when I when I was in Germany, there was a um, a woman, a dwarf woman, an incredible gossip. She knew everything, and she would um, around the middle of the day uh, walk through the small town with two of her, of her friends who were of average size. She'd be in the middle. They'd be on either side of her, and they would tell gossip. They would hear gossip. They would carry it on. And I was never allowed to talk with her because people considered her uh, dangerous. And uh, I had no idea how much she had become part of my inner landscape until I wrote my third book, Floating in My Mother's Palm. And she was a character in there, not the central character, but definitely a character. And then when I wrote Stones from the River, of course, that's her book. And um, what we talked about before, becoming the character, uh, with Trudy, I was her height, I was her size, I had her, um, her sorrows, I had her bliss, I had to, I had to be that size. And when I was in my study, I was that size. And so for me, that was a way to really know her from inside out. And um, so she, um, I left Germany when I was 18. And once I started writing about her in floating in my mother's palm, I went back to Germany for research, but also to see if I could find her. And um, I was with my father. I asked around, could not find her. And I was with my father in an Italian ice cream parlor and she comes walking in and she stops. She was the only dwarf in town, so there was no mistaking her, even though I'd been away a long time. She stops at her <laughs> at our table and um, her face is about at the same level as mine. And she says to me, uh, so I hear you've been looking for me. And out of that started a strange kind of bartering for information. Um, she um, wouldn't release anything until I gave her something. Uh, the next thing was, um, so I hear you're divorced. And I gave her a little bit, a little bit, because I was realizing what was happening. And I was fascinated by it. I gave her a little bit about my divorce. And my father got up and without a word left the Italian ice cream parlor. And um, she and I talked. We talked for a long time. And this thing of bartering information that's very much part of her character came from that conversation, the only conversation I ever had with her. Um, she told me she had a son who was of average height. She... Um, told me she knew that she'd been used as a warning if kids didn't obey. Like my best friend, Marga, she was told, told, if you eat butter with a spoon, you're going to end up like Stamme Anakin. I was told, if you pick up this baby and drop it, it'll be just like Stamme Anakin. So whatever we did as kids, the ultimate warning was, you'll be like that. And she was so aware of that. Um, I loved her. I loved her as the character. I um, There's much more that I don't know about her than I know. And what I know is more 
what was inside of me to be able to identify with her to that degree. But she is of all the characters I've written. She's the one who has taken the most space within me. Did she know about the books you wrote? No, no. She, she didn't know much about me other than the gossip. And this gossip, I figured out, had come to her via my friend Marga's mother, who, Frau Fieten, who was a tremendous gossip, beautiful gossip. And um, she definitely hadn't heard from my father because if you have a daughter on another continent um, who does this disgraceful thing called divorce, you don't have any obligation to tell anyone. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer, and then you can share why you chose that? This is um, a passage from Louise Ertwig, The Last Report on the Miracles at Little Nobors, the title of the book. And uh, the character's voice in here uh, belongs to Marie Kaspar. And the chapter is called Red, R-E-D, Mother. When you don't have a mother, you have to make one. Get yourself a piece of clay and shaping your fingers in the shape you always make will be a mother. Well, press it together of mud and sticks. Sometimes a tree would do, gnarled around me, bundles of weeds. I used a blanket rolled and bunched in the shape of her, rags. Sometimes there was a little extra stew in the pot, and I stole it and said to myself, she gave it to me. Sometimes just grass. Grass was all I needed. The warmth of it in the sun was her golden green smell and the soft brush of it, her fingers stroking my face. You don't have a mother, you make one up. That's how I made mine. And still she is standing where I made her, dark and red in the heavy woods. When I read this, um, it had so much to do with how I felt and grew after my mother's death. Um, I was 13. I watched her die. And um, when I was on book tour with my sixth book, someone in the audience asked, um, I've no said, I've noticed that all your books have a dead mother in them. And I said, oh, no, no. And... She and I put it together. Well, yes, it's there, there, it's there. And I realized for the first time how much the absence of my mother is a presence in my books. And even after that, I couldn't, I couldn't stay away from it because um, it is so much of what defines me, what changed me. And so Louise Ertwick's passage just was like a gong inside me, one a reverberating gong. I love her as a writer, anyhow, but this passage is, is magnificent. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? I mentioned before that my beginning, or I'd rather think of it as point of entry, was he comes to her at night, and that now is about a third into the novel. And I needed, I was really looking for uh, the bliss, and I wanted to start the book with that. And I told you about the young couple at the swimming pool. So this is chapter one, a hundred year wave. With each pregnancy, Lotte and the toy maker introduced their unborn to the sea. Lotte with her belly taut, color with his hands on her hips, 
as she guides her, as he guides her in, color with his hands on her hips, as he guides her in to the peak of her belly, eyes shut with bliss, with reverie. Lotta feels her baby swim, the wall of her body separating it from the Nordsee. First Hannelore, then Martine, then Belbo. During her fourth pregnancy, Lotta gets playful and dives into a handstand, surprise herself and the to- surprises herself and the toy maker, who laughs aloud, faced with her feet wiggling above the surface of the sea. But as she reaches down to steady her, one hand on her belly, the other on her buttocks, he's the one who needs steadying because Lotta shoots up, spews water at him, clamps her legs around his middle, tilts herself to him. Do you want to say anything else about choosing that passage? Well, it, it has to do with what I said earlier about um, sorrow and searching for the bliss. And then, like a gift, you know, I see these two young people in the pool, swimming pool I go to, and I know, I know this is going to be my beginning. There are things in what I read um, that I obviously don't know about them. I don't know if it's their first child or their fourth, but it just it just fit color and lauder, and it fit the book. And it introduced then for me more passages of joy, that awareness of joy, of bliss. Where do you write? I have a study that overlooks the border. Um, I write at my desk. I write at a swimming pool. I write by the sea. I, I do the computer work at my desk or on the sun porch. Then I print out what I have, and that's what I take with me when I go somewhere else to work. Uh, I, um, I may go to a coffee shop. I, um, I may go to a library. I like writing in libraries. But it's, um, it's just the paper then. And then when I've gone through that several times, I put it back into, into the computer when, when it's fresh. And um, so that's where I write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? We talked about water before. Um, a lot of it is connected to water. I'm a swimmer. I kayak. I walk along water, um, lakes rivers, um, and of course, the ocean out here. Um, I also do yoga. I've done volunteer work over the years with uh, young children. There is a, is a group called Big Brother, Big Sister. And for about 20 years, 10 years with each child, I mentored a young girl. Uh, one of them I started when she was six and I was 46. And um she moved away after 10 years, and I, after a while, I applied again and um, mentored an 11-year-old who, um, who had come from Mexico, who was um, very, very shy, who would cry in class, um, fall asleep in class, and just was very fragile, and she had come across the border with coyotes, and um, when I met her, she barely talked, and our third meeting, she was playing hide-and-seek in my house, jumping at me um, when I pretended not to see her, and she would laugh, and then she did something 
where she did something for me that meant a lot to her. We went bicycling and my chain came off. And she said, um, let me show you how to put it back on. <laughs> and she did that and I did not help. And um, she was so proud of that. And I, I came to love both of them. And I would see, you know, the child who was assigned to me uh, once a week for three or four hours. We went swimming a lot. We hiked. We, um, we did ordinary stuff like run errands, go to the grocery store, and they'd help me pick out what they wanted to eat for dinner. Um, it was really, really rewarding. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, Gordon, my husband. And it's the... Um, We've been together over 30 years now, and he is a very, very good critic. He responds to what he sees, what he reads, and um, it's the same way I approach his work. I would not say, um, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? We're both really respectful of the creative process, and um, I may say, uh, gee, don't you think it's done? <laughs> but that's the most, I will say. Or I'll say, I love it. This is great. Or the color here. Or, um, But in terms of a suggestion, um, he sometimes puts something away for a week or so and works on it again or decides not to work on it again. But it's always his decision. As it is, when he looks at my work, it's my decision. And then, he, of course, he reads the book when it's... Um, before I send it out. Another first reader is, uh, is a classmate, uh, Barbara Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, uh, who is a writer, a wonderful writer. And we read each other's work before it goes out. And we've been doing that since, uh, well, over 40 years now. How have you dealt with rejection? I do keep writing. It doesn't mean I just smile or whatever. I make curves or go for a long for a long hike. Um, the worst re rejection was when uh, one of the writers I absolutely loved, Toni Morrison, uh, was interested in intrusions. And she called me and we talked. But two weeks later, she told me she could not get the support of the other editors. And that was hard because imagining her as my editor was, would have been wonderful. Um, I've, I deal with rejection. Um, I, I go on. Okay. I, I write the next book. I write the next story. I, what helps with that too is, um, that I've discovered maybe by about intrusions that I write for myself, that I don't write for an editor. I don't write for an agent. I don't think of an audience. Uh, when I'm writing. If I need an audience beyond um, myself, I uh, imagine the characters as my audience. And um, that keeps the integrity of the vision with the characters, but I don't write to, to please anyone. I don't write to sell. But with the first novel, it was very, very, very important that to me at that time that I published a novel. And um, it has never been that important since. And what is your favorite word? This was the hardest part in preparing for the interview. Um, 
I finally, I finally decided on Hochwasser, which means high water, flood, and it has so much to do with, with the book because um, the land gets flooded. When I was a child, um, we had a lot of Hochwasser. We lived by the Rhine, and uh, there were floods just about every year. And um, we would see things floating past us. We, um, I was, I was mesmerized by floods. I would go as close as anyone would let me. Um, when the floods happened in St. Louis, I, I went there to write about the flood to for myself to. Um, to be there, and I ended up um, helping sandbagging. And, uh, you know, I described the smell, I described... I mean, there is an absolute fascination with floods, with the river or the sea leaving leaving its bed. Um, the word Hochwasser also uh, has a funny meaning. It means when uh, someone's pants are way too short, you know, like above the ankles, you'll say, oh, that's Hochwasser. And um, so, yes, that's my word, Hochwasser. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, Mitzi, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful questions. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Ursula Hagee, author of The Patron Saint of Pregnant Girls. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Claire Massoud, whose novel The Burning Girl focuses on two adolescent girls trying to escape the place of their birth. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey, I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.